Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. Each week, we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing goals. That's right. This week, we're talking to our very own Christina Adams about her latest book, Hollywood Heartbreak. And as we've never done this before, just so you are aware, Christina Adams is an author, poet and blogger from the UK. She has published 16 books, is a freelance content marketer specialising in health, SaaS and marketing, and happens to be my favourite co-host of the Writer's Mindset podcast. In her spare time, she likes to hang out watching mummy documentaries with her dog Millie and inflicting strange cooking experiments on her boyfriend. Today, I will be picking her brain about her latest book, Hollywood heartbreak, and that, in a strange turn of events, the book ended up torturing her as well as her torturing her characters. Thank you for that lovely intro, and I would just like to point out, I have branched out into Egyptian documentaries now, not just mummy documentaries, purely because I exhausted all the mummy ones. No worries, I'll I'll change your new intro, it's no problem. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into it, I'd just like to say a big thank you to our patrons for supporting us to put this podcast together. As a patron, you get early access to episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into creating these episodes to help inspire and motivate you. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. Today, before we get into the meat of it, we're going to play a little game and we're going to do pet ownership room 101. So Ellie, what would go into your pet ownership room 101? Well, it seems like something very small. It seems like something that most people don't run into. And yet, my cat Frankie, who I'm sure you've all seen, always decides to wake up when I'm trying to record. He was asleep all day earlier, all day, hours and hours, napping, changing position, changing location, kind of following me around the house a bit. But napping, as soon as I sat down to record, no, no, he wanted to scratch in the box. He wanted to attack um, some packaging that I had. He started playing with the doorstop, which he'd never done before in his whole life. Just wouldn't, just wouldn't shut the fuck up, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And if I could, I, w- I would just put that, that very annoying little trait <laughs> into uh, Pet Ownership Room 101. It's like he knows and he's like, no, you're not giving your attention to this crap. I'm getting it. Exactly. He's saying, fuck this. It's not important. Who needs a podcast anyway? Give me all of your attention. Yeah, background noise isn't a big deal. It doesn't ruin things or anything. No, definitely not. No, it's definitely not really awkward to edit out, right? Not at all. (laughs) What about you? What would you put in Pet Ownership Room 101? So I thought this was just a Millie thing, but I've spoken to a few of the dog owners recently and they have actually said that their dogs do the same thing. And Millie has this thing where she won't poo in the back garden. But also she doesn't like walking. You're making her do something she doesn't want to do in order to get her to do something that she needs to do. And of course, she doesn't understand why it's important. But she resents you for walking her and having to walk her further because she hasn't been yet or taking her on multiple walks because she hasn't been yet. And it's become such a thing in our house that she now has multiple punny nicknames related to it that we say kind of more and more, the more annoyed we get with her. Like one of the ones we use the most is brew dog. Cause she's, you know, brewing. She's, she's brewing. And she is 
Amusingly, the laziest dog I've ever met, she just doesn't want to go out. She just wants yeah. to sleep on the sofa and cuddle up to you, which is adorable. She does, yeah. She's, she is me in dog form, basically. This is such a thing. I've written a poem about it. Do you want to hear the poem? Yes, I want to hear the poem. Absolutely. Okay, so this is called Brew Dog. You stand at the door watching the rain, infuriated. It's that time again. How has it gone around so fast? Why can't the emptiness just last? You whimper and step back. Not falling for a nonsense claptrap. It may be your garden, but it isn't your loo. There's no way you're using it for a poo. We put on your coat and your lead. Thankful at least you've peed. You glare at us, not wanting to go, but you have to, you know. Forward, stop, forward, sniff. For some reason, a poo sends you in a tiz. You hate to go, but feel better when you do. How did we end up with a dog afraid of a poo? <laughs> That's incredible. I absolutely love it. I love you. that uh, your dog not wanting to poo inspired you to write a poem. That's amazing. It's just such a ridiculous thing. She resents going for a shit. Genuinely. It's bizarre. You see either the hatred or the fear in her face every time she has to go. It's like, dog, it, it's one of those things like, you know how we can ruminate on things and it stops us from doing things? the exact same thing with her she's overthinking pooing <laughs> she genuinely does because she will walk stop walk stop and it's like dog this would be a lot easier if you just walk and then shit and then walk some more she knows it's coming though so that's why she still keeps stopping i think yeah so, oh no oh no i know what this means i don't want to i don't want to oh 100 percent. yeah 100%. <laughs> oh that's adorable bless her bless her anyway moving on from poo <laughs> shall we uh get into your interview Yes, let's go. So, as I said, today we are talking to Christina all about the process of writing Hollywood Heartbreak and what it taught her, even after so many books. First and foremost, then, how does it feel to finally have finished writing and editing Hollywood Heartbreak? It's really hard to put into words um, because this was just a really stressful process not just because of the book itself but everything that happened while I was writing and editing it and you put the two together and it's a bit of a mindfuck and there was a lot of parts of the process that we're going to cover in this episode that were deeply stressful and so in a way it is kind of a relief and even though I only really started writing this in July it feels like it took a lot longer and I don't know why because what happens in New York and the ghost call both took me close to a year new york was just over a year and ghost was just under and yet this feels like it was longer does that make absolutely any sense whatsoever it does make sense and i think part of the reason for that right is that the big issues that are tackled in it obviously the book physically may not be as longer but emotionally it took a, a bigger toll on you oh it's longer it's my longest book since what happens in london but yeah well that's why it took longer then <laughs> well it's a little bit longer. London is 120,000. New York is 92. And this is 87. And most of the other Hollywood books are 70 to 80. And this, I think I added about 15,000 words after I got beta notes back because they were like, this needs more depth and that needs more depth. And you need to explore this that you haven't explored. And, you know, that obviously made my brain hurt. But it's funny because this was the book I was the most excited to write in the series. And while it wasn't specifically writing this book that made me want to quit last summer, it was certainly a part of that thought process because I was just so emotionally drained from some of the topics that are covered in it. That makes sense. And that ties into why it feels 
so much bigger. And as well, why you feel so relieved to have finished it, right? It's a big project. You're allowed to feel relieved after finishing a big project. True. It's probably my meatiest book because the Hollywood Gossip series is a lot more emotional than what happens in books. It deals with a lot of heavier subjects like what happens in covers addiction, but it doesn't cover... It covers more like the aftermath of it and rather than this series, which covers being in it and dealing with it. I don't want to say getting over it because you don't know if Jack does or not, but it deals with that path and also what caused him to become addicted in the first place. And then you've got Tate with her eating disorder. You've got her issues with her adoptive, uh, yeah, her adoptive parents and her birth parents. You've got the pressures of fame and how those feed into Tate and Jack's relationship and also how being famous and in an interracial relationship affects them as well. And there is so much going on in this book and juggling lots of different challenging topics in any one piece of media is really hard. And if you look at some other ensemble shows or books or films, there are very few that are successfully pulled off because some characters get more attention than others and some themes get more attention than others. And when they try to bring some other characters to the forefront, they usually get a really lame subplot. I'm thinking of Gossip Girl at the moment and how Nate fell into the background and then just got a really crappy love interest who then just disappeared in the last episode. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. It was a hard task for you to complete. And part of the reason for that, which obviously we've already discussed at length, is because of the overlap with what happens in New York and what happens in London, right? So with regards to the overlaps then from the other the original series, how did that affect your writing process? Well, when I did New York, I didn't plot. I was just writing. And so I ended up actually with over 100,000 words of cut words because I didn't know what direction I was going in. And there was, you know, four main characters. There was Holly and Faith and then there was Aston and Liam. And then you've got Tate and Jack and Trinity as tertiary characters. And all the other characters like Liam's bodyguard and Holly's nan and Faith's family. And, you know, so it's a lot. And not having a plan for that then made the rest of the series and universe a lot harder. London, I did plot it. I didn't outline it. I plotted it. So I knew, okay, this happens here, but I don't necessarily know how it happens in loads of depth. I just know that, like, there's a gun involved or something happens at the pub or they're in London and there's an accident on a film set so I kind of vaguely knew things and that did make the process easier but I didn't necessarily put those things in a safe place like I did put a lot of things in Scrivener but I didn't label things very well and I didn't necessarily make them so that future me would understand them I made them so that present me could make sense of them but I am now me five years later so I don't think in the same way I'm a very different person well of course you people change a lot in five years that makes sense yeah, and I'm a very different writer as well. And so when I came to write Hollywood Heartbreak, well, let's go back before that, actually. I always knew I would write about Tate and Jack and give them their own book. And the reason I chose to do that was because I already felt like there was so much going on in what happens in New York that if I added them too much to the What Happens In series, I couldn't explore their story in enough depth. But I planned for Hollywood Gossip to be one book. One. It turned into six I was going to say, how many is it now? Because this yeah, is book five, right? Yeah, this is book five in the series, yeah. Yep. And so if you include Hollywood Nightmare, which is a Trinity's book, 
then technically it's seven. But I, Hollywood Nightmare is kind of a bridge between what happens in and Hollywood Gossip because it's written by Trinity, who's the main kind of antagonist for both series. And yeah, it made it a bit of a mindfuck not having those notes to get back to. And it meant that I had to go back and reread my own work. And if you've listened to earlier episodes, I think I talk about it in depth with Elizabeth Spann-Craig. I don't read my own work once it's published. Once something is published, regardless of what it is, I am done. I literally like forget about it. I'm not even joking. If I don't have those notes to refer back to, I have no idea what happened next because my brain is already moving on to the next thing. Like we were rewatching The Matrix the other day and my boyfriend was talking about certain things that happened. Even though I know I've seen those films, I have one image in my head from three films. I do not remember other people's work and I don't remember my past work because my brain is always looking forwards. That's just how my brain operates, right? And so working on Hollywood Heartbreak, it became really fucking hard. And I did have to reread. No, I didn't do it initially. I put it off and I did kind of do a bullet pointed plan based on what I remembered and could find of New York and London. And it was draining to write some of those scenes. I think probably for personal reasons, I was tapping into parts of me that I haven't for a very long time. I don't want to go into it any more than that purely because of spoilers. But that scene, those couple of chapters, I guess, are right in the middle of the book. And they're what the whole thing hinges on, basically. So those scenes really needed the emotional resonance for the audience to understand this is the trigger point for all of this change. And that's really hard. And it was really hard to read back through as well, actually. I was reading it back on the, in the car on the way back from Christmas in, with the in-laws and I was crying in the car. That's how much it affected me. Even though I've read it, I've probably read this book more than I've read a lot of my other ones because I wanted to get it right. And it got to, I won't say November, and I was like, I really can't put off rereading my own work any longer. I've got to get over this. I've got to get this book finished. It's kind of hovering over me, but it wasn't so much the book hovering over me. It was the thought of going back to my old work and almost reliving who I was five years ago, how naive I was, how... I guess naive is the best word I can think of. I, I don't like revisiting old me very much. I'm very much of a looking forward kind of person. Just to clarify, you're talking about rereading What Happens in New York and What Happens in London to feed into what Hollywood Heartbreak, yeah? Yeah, and to check like things like, because Tate changes her hair quite a lot, and I didn't write down when she changes her hair in the timeline. So Tate's got like three or four different hairstyles over the course of those books and for the sake of consistency I need to be consistent with those and I chose not to mention one or two of them because I felt like it didn't add anything but some of them you know it's important like something I almost forgot is that at one point Holly who's a redhead changes her hair to dark brown and that's a significant moment for her because it shows her emotion it shows how she's feeling and at another point she wears blonde wig And those things matter the same as it matters when Tate cuts her hair from really long to short, because when a woman does change her hair or when anyone does, it might not just be a female thing. It's usually because of a dramatic emotional change and it reflects that. I had red hair for 15 years and now I have dark brown balayage because I'm older and more mature. I feel like I'm talking like my granny for fuck's sake. I'm 31. You're not, it's fine. (laughs) 
What? I'm not 31? Okay. <laughs> You're not talking like it's a year crazy. Pretty sure you are still 31. <laughs> yeah. Although I do keep writing I'm 32 already, so my brain's already aging me. But yeah, I just had this mental barrier of going back through my old work and I'm not quite sure what finally got me to push through it but I did find that once I started reading I was like oh okay this isn't so bad I don't mind it actually and I could almost read it objectively compared to um where you know five years ago I wouldn't have been able to read it that objectively and there are still some things I would like to change but I'm not going to. I've picked some typos that I inspired and like a couple of other things and updated the formatting. But it allowed me to actually feel more confident in my past work. And I never thought that that would come from a reread. And I feel like that was really powerful and also really good for my confidence. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Um, I don't actually reread my old work. Maybe I should. But I'm really glad that you managed to um, get some more confidence from it. Was that the hardest part? in terms of the overlaps and is actually having to go through your old work? I think so, yeah. Um, and also, even though I reread it, I still needed help from one of my friends who was completely amazing with this process and went over, went back over old stuff as well to help me. I never asked her to. She went above and beyond and like that was just amazing. And yeah, it was that mental barrier I think more than anything we were talking before we started recording about like how I describe it and it's like if you watch certain sci-fi films someone puts their hand out onto like a force field type thing and it bounces back and they have to really push all of their energy to get through that force field and it did feel a lot like that you know it it felt like I had to become Sonic the Hedgehog to bash through that wall that was of my own making and it was hard. And I tended to actually to read it in big chunks rather than little and often, which is what I aim to do, actually. <laughs> when I'm working on a project, I tend to focus on trying to do it little and often. But most of the time, what I would do is I would go and read in the bath because I do a lot of reading in the bath. That's where I do most of mine. And I usually like put a hair mask in, um, some nice bubble bath, and then I just soak in there to ease my joints. And when I say soaking there, I do mean for about two hours. And now you sound like an old lady, easing your joints. Hey, I have <laughs> kind of pain. I'm allowed to sound like an old lady. And yeah, that really helps because when I'm in the bathroom, I don't have my phone with me. I don't have my watch with me. The only technology in there is my Kindle or iPad. Other e-readers are available. And yeah, that really helped. That really, really helped because I didn't have those distractions and it really allowed me to focus on what I was doing and on the words on the page. And that can be really hard sometimes, I think, when you don't want to do something, getting distracted by a notification on your phone or the dog doing something to you. Oh, there's a new episode of Queer Eye. There, there wasn't um, when I was reading it, but it's just because I've been binge-watching it now. It does make a difference. And like I say, when I'm really struggling to read, the main thing that helps me be able to do that is just going for a bath and not having the distractions. I like it. You have good techniques to uh, push through the force field now. Thank you. Yes. Well, the thing is, like, they are good techniques, but every force field is different and requires different strength. Like, when I was working on what happens in New York, I was working on it just after we moved into, well, before and after we moved into this place. And for two weeks, I think, we didn't have internet and we didn't have aerial sockets. So no TV and no internet for people like us who 
are the heaviest users of internet in our area by a very large margin. We are very heavy users. And it was hard, but that was kind of like, well, I can't be bothered to get up and change the DVD when I'm watching Castle, you know? I'm too lazy to keep getting up and changing it. So that kind of didn't give me a choice. It took away all of those distractions and meant I literally had to come home and get home and start writing as soon as I get home from work because there was nothing else because you didn't even have the dog at the time you know and I'm not going to go out walking without a dog like I didn't exercise well I convinced myself I don't but anyway (laughs) walking is much more boring without a dog (laughs) I hate it I hate it this is why I do yoga so in terms of being a writer then even though you are 16 books in now what did this book teach you about you and your writing process it really showed me the importance of having a good outline because if I had outlined what happens in New York in more depth, I wouldn't have had to go back and read my own work. I would have known exactly what the characters looked like, exactly what happened in what month and what year. And, you know, even though Tate and Jack are side characters, they're referenced a lot because they're besties with Aston and Liam. So it does matter. And it would have saved me a lot of time. It would have saved me a lot of stress. It would have made my process more efficient and would have meant that readers wouldn't have had to wait from last May to now to read the next book. Because that that doesn't sound like a massive gap, right? When you're traditionally published, it's usually one book a year. But for indies, most people are publishing very quickly. And I did three books last year. That sounds great. But my record is five books in a year. So it did massively slow down my process. Yes, I did go through other stuff as well at the same time. But I do think an element of it was the process itself being inefficient and being stressful. For people, though, that aren't going to be having to reference and overlap with previous books, is the outlining process, like if you hadn't had to do that, would the outlining process still have made the writing of the book easier? Will it still have been beneficial? Oh, definitely. Because a lot of people, their reasoning for not liking outlining is they find it less creative. For me, it was the, it just felt overwhelming. But I decided I wasn't going to write like 30 or thousand outlines like some people do. I was just going to write in as much depth as I needed so that I could write first thing in the morning and not get stuck. And I, the first book I outlined was actually a short story. It's my reader magnet for the Afterlife Calls series, and it's called The Mother's Lesson. I might change the title because I don't really like it. Anyway. Um, I like the title. <laughs> I, it's just not fantasy enough, I think, is my problem. Anyway, I outlined that, and then I outlined... Um, the Witch's Sacrifice, which is book four. I don't think I did outline Necromancer. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, going through it was so much easier. And that short story, I think, is about 7,000 words. And I wrote it in less than a week. I wrote it in like three or four days. And I edited it in like an hour. And then it was up. And it was just such a faster process and less stressful. And there were some things that still changed because I do believe outlines should be flexible i don't think they should be rigid you know there are a couple of things that as i was writing they didn't quite fit like i wanted someone to make a bit of a dig uh heavy for being hispanic and i cut that because it just didn't fit the kind of conversation um that the characters were having and there was a few other bits and pieces that i altered slightly as well 
But having already done all of the problem solving before I sat down to actually write, it was just nicer because I could focus on the words coming out sexier, which is something that generally first draft should not be about. But I did have the brain power to think about that phrasing to make it snappier, to make it more poetic, because I wasn't thinking, okay, what's going to happen next? I wasn't planning really far ahead. I could focus on that sentence there and then and how this spell sounds and what this looks like. And it gave me a lot more freedom for the minutia that often stops people from finishing first drafts in the first place. Save your brain power, not having to work out what happens and use it on making it sound good. Yeah, just as a segue, are you comfortable sharing a little bit about your outlining for Alex Warrington? Because I know you were reluctant and we tried it and then it changed things. Because I just have a really vivid memory of during a writing sprint. No, it wasn't during a writing sprint, I don't think. it was. We were doing something or you were writing on your own and you just like had a massive brain fart and couldn't think of what happened next. Yeah, so I'd never outlined before, to be honest with you. I'd, I'd kind of roughly planned and... I'd kind of roughly planned mostly in my own head for Alex Warrington, but one, the biggest issue I had, I had no idea it was in the middle. So I, I knew where, where we all started and I actually wrote the last scene a long time ago. Um, but as I was writing further and further in, I just felt lost because I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was needed to happen. I just hadn't spent any time thinking about it. And then when I was at your house, you and Millie helped me uh, plan it all out on sticky notes, which was really good that you were asking really good questions like what happens next? Why does that happen? How does that work? You know, does this need to happen before that or after that? Things like that. And trying to get that down. We did it on the sticky notes. And then after I had those, I went out and actually outlined for the first time. So I went through, it took me two or three hours, to be honest, but it ended up with like a five page bullet point outline, start to finish. So I took the sticky notes and, and added more detail. And in doing that, now when I sit down to write, I already know what's coming. You know, I wrote scene 10 last time, I'm doing scene 11 now, this, this, and this happens in scene 11, and I can just do it because I've got the detail there. Um, I actually cover this in a bit more, well, quite a lot more detail in uh, an upcoming bonus episode for our patrons but that that's the rough the rough way i did it i guess <laughs> that's that's the rough detail because i don't feel lost anymore i feel like i know what's coming uh, especially in the middle which i think i was avoiding thinking about yeah i feel and like i asked you a lot of questions you didn't want to answer <laughs> no what's up <laughs> But the, I, I needed to answer that. There was yes. one in particular, I remember. You were like, why is the side character there? I was like, because yes. that's her only friend. And you were like, but what does he do? I'm like, he he's her friend. He's there for her. And you're like, he needs to add more to the story. Yeah. I'm like, she can't have no friends. I was like, yes, she can. <laughs> like, if he doesn't serve a purpose, she can have no friends. Well, I literally true. gotten rid of all of my friends for one of my characters. Because it's better for the story. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, he does, I think, realistically, he did have a purpose. I've expanded on that purpose now. Did you expand it or did you change it? Because it felt like a change rather than an expansion for me. Because Probably. you have to rewrite some scenes. Yeah, I mean, his purpose, I sort of uncovered whilst we were talking, was to be the one who is not just there for her, not just her only friend, but in actual fact, he's the one who makes her realise that some people are betraying her kind of thing, that they aren't what they seem. But I hadn't really articulated that and I hadn't really 
you know, even articulated it in my own head. So when you were asking me questions about this character, that's what forced me to come to that conclusion. And then I just made him much more interesting to be around because he's completely skeptical of everything to do with magic. So he offers the role of sort of um, helping her see what's really there. So probably book two onwards. But in book one, he becomes a much stronger part of the story by um, basically taking the piss out of her. Uh, and a lot of scenes, that's the scene I was telling you about, where they're like, uh, it's not going to make any sense out of context, but they're looking for a wand for Alex, basically. And he's just ripping shit out of her the whole time. They're out. He's there, like he's being supportive, he's being a good friend. He is taking the piss the whole time. And that just makes it more interesting. And there's obviously other scenes that he's in that make it more interesting too, but that I enjoyed. It sounds fun. I can't wait to read it because I love your comedic timing and I think it's going to come across <laughs> really, really well. Hopefully. <laughs> and I, we'll see. I think though... Asking yourself those really hard questions before you sit down to write makes it a lot easier because at the risk of digging myself into a hole, um, the reason I haven't gone back to empath yet is because there are certain elements of the world building that I'm not sure on yet. And I do need to reach out to some people for help with that. And because I've got so many other things going on, I haven't yet. But actually, our interview with Savannah Cade, which is coming up in February, really inspired me to do it because she actually researches her books about a year before she writes them so that she has wow. plenty of time. Yeah. So I think I need to get my ass into gear and do a bit more research for Empath um, because I have a plan for Q1. I do not have a plan beyond Q1 because I don't want to overwhelm myself. I really want to focus on publishing Heartbreak, which I've obviously done, and finishing The Necromancer's Secret and The Witch's Sacrifice, and then almost kind of seeing what I'm in the mood to write next, but also what makes the most sense from a business point of view as well, because there are a couple of new series I want to start, one under each pen name, and I don't know which I'm going to go with yet. Mm, intriguing. But yes, we are now both pro-outlining, but... We weren't up until this year. And I think I distinctly remember an episode of the podcast where you, uh, in my words, ate your words regarding outlining. I think that's how I described it. What made you want to try outlining? It was last kind of August when I already had a draft of Heartbreak and possibly one of Necromancer. And I interviewed loads of people and almost every single person said that they outlined their books. There are a couple of people who didn't. I, I think some of those people had stuff in their heads rather than writing it down. I'm not a person who can retain much of my head, as you probably noticed from what I said earlier. I like to get as much out of my head as possible because it's just less stressful. And so seeing so many people who were really smart and further ahead in their careers than me say that they outlined made me think, well, maybe I can find a way to do this that works for me. Because like... Matty Dalrymple and Elizabeth Spankraig do the most insane outlines that you can find out more about in our interviews with them from season three. Yeah, one of them does like 30,000 words or something. Who was it? I think it was Elizabeth, but I can't remember for definite. Matty's was definitely very in-depth as well. Yeah, that's, that's a, a lot of time and effort you're putting into the outline then. But then again, it's a faster writing process. And I, like I said, the thought of doing something that in-depth terrified me. So I didn't do that. What I did was a chapter breakdown. What I did basically for um, The Witch's Sacrifice 
was that I wrote down the point of view for each chapter and then I wrote down what happens in it and I tried to pull out as much detail as possible. So like if they're stroking an animal while having a conversation, that's usually relevant in my books. Like the animals have a purpose. They're not just props. And if they need something or if they're thinking about something and saying something else, I wrote those things down. Like if someone's starting to doubt what they're doing or if um, something looks suspicious or particularly how something happens, you know, I've got most of the world building down because this is book form, but there are other things that still need refining. And I could do that in the outlining process. And I can't remember how long my outline is, if I'm being completely honest. I think it's only a couple of thousand, if that. What it really helped me to realize is that I always forget subplots, whether I'm bullet pointing or outlining. I'm really bad for it because um, we used an analogy in an earlier episode of gaming. I don't like side quests in RPGs. Side quests piss me off because I just want to know what the main story is. And I don't want to I finish li- it. I live for the side quests. <laughs> <laughs> I hate them. They, they wind me up because I just want to know what the main story is. And then I want to go back and do the side quests after. And that's how I feel with my books. So if the benefit of outlining basically is that my brain can get to the end of the story but then go back and fill in the side quests as well because you know the subplots of a story do have to be relevant to what is going on in the book and that's a lot harder to fill in retrospectively which is something that I did for the mummy's curse and thankfully people have been very nice about the mummy's curse even though I did that I love the mummy's curse thank you but it, it was a lot harder you know I basically sat down and wrote a short story about Neve and then filled it in and had to check for inconsistencies and there nearly was something that I almost forgot which was that Neve was injured in one chapter because of the side plot and then she was fine in the next chapter and if I hadn't gone back through and read the book backwards I wouldn't have picked up on that inconsistency that's interesting I like that I think it's it's good to know that the interviewees inspired you to try outlining, but also good to know that you've learned a lot about yourself and your process from doing that. Not just the fact that it makes it easier, but that you discovered you keep missing, well, not keep missing, you occasionally neglect the subplots. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting that you learned that about yourself. I think part of it is because I am technically trained to write short stories, but everything I have learned about plotting is self-taught. Because even though I did creative writing for four years, we didn't do very much on plotting at all. And there certainly wasn't anything on subplots or side quests or whatever you want to call them. And so I've got to teach myself that stuff. And that's why it's usually secondary because I'm so busy focusing on that kind of arc that you get in a story that's probably backwards for people watching. But anyway, so yeah, it's something I have to be consciously aware of. And I think one thing I've really learned is that the best writers, as I've said before, have a business background and they self-teach writing and they are fully aware that it is an ongoing journey that doesn't necessarily have an end, but that's the beauty of it at the same time. All the best writers that talk about that agree that it is a constant journey. You constantly should be learning and should be expanding your skills, your knowledge, etc. And I love that. I love learning shit anyway. So I love the idea that I can constantly improve. If you keep going, I'm going to keep getting better. And I like that. Yeah. And kind of reflecting back, I do think I learned more last year in terms of writing because I did 5,000 words a day this time last year for Hollywood Destiny. And that was my fastest turnaround for a book. 
But at the same time as working on that, I was editing The Ghost Call. And I learned a lot about fantasy writing and world building from doing that. And Alexa, who we also interviewed about world building, taught me a lot, pushed me very hard. And then The Mummy's Curse, like I say, it taught me about subplots. And Hollywood Heartbreak taught me a lot about the process and why certain things are better or easier. And it also really pushed me to go to parts of my head that I am not always comfortable with. (laughs) It was almost therapeutic in some ways, particularly in a similar way to what happens in Paphos. And if you've read what happens in Paphos, you will be able to connect the dots, possibly. But I'm not going to say any more than that because of spoilers. But like tonally, it it's a Hollywood gossip book, but it's also on par with pushing the characters as far as what happens in Paphos does. Interesting. Yes. No spoilers for our audience. One more thing I did want to bring up then is that you changed the opening scene to Hollywood Heartbreak multiple times. Um, I think that would be interesting for our writers to learn why you did that. I don't remember what my original plot for it looked like, and I don't think I've got it anymore. But for me, the original opening um, was Jack at a party, which is kind of typical Jack, you know? And as I was writing the book, I thought, I need something else before this. And I ended up changing it and focusing on Tate. And then I thought, hang on a minute, there's a big gap here between the end of the last book and the start of this one. And people need that gap filling in. And so I kind of filled it in in like one chapter and it turned into a bit of a prologue. And the notes I got back from Alexa basically said, you need to push Tate harder. We need to feel her journey because she's had it slightly easier than Jack. And this is kind of her make or break moment. Because like I said, Hollywood gossip was meant to be just one book. One, one. And my brain turned it into six. So this book is almost the long dark night of the soul for both characters. Particularly the start of the book for Tate And then like later on in the middle for Jack. And this is what really turns them into the characters that we know and love from what happens in books. You know, the people who are there for others, who support them, who use their platforms and their money to help others lead better lives, essentially. You've seen bits of it before, like Tate helps homeless people. um, And no, Jack doesn't really do anything selfless. Um, But there are glimmers of them doing stuff for the people and being the people that they can become, but they have to get over their selfishness first. And I know that when people read Hollywood gossip, they were very surprised at the fact that Tate was the bitchy one and Trinity was the nice one because in the what happens in books, it's the other way around. Hollywood gossip is set several years before what happens in. And so they have to go through a journey to get there. And this book is really, it's the heart of their journey, essentially. You know, for them to go through such a metamorphosis, it has to be challenging and it has to push them. But also, I think it had to push me as a writer because of what those topics are. That's interesting. So the beginning of the book now answers all those questions, I assume. And adds in lots more suffering for Tate. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I mean... Tate's always described as a bit of a princess by most of the characters. And she is really 
had a gradual downfall in the series but at the start of this book she's really at her worst and she comes to an epiphany that you know what she's doing is stopping her from living the life that she wants and how is she allowing that to happen you know it's contradictory and Tate is a massive control freak and she needed to realize that actually she does need to let go of some things to be able to live the life that she wants and I actually rewrote that scene where it happens to her a couple of times because the first one I felt like it was a little bit too rushed and it didn't explore what she went through and how she felt in enough depth and I rewrote it and I think I might have doubled or tripled the length of that scene but it's so much stronger for it and it's not it's a very emotional scene for her but I think for readers it will be more about understanding her psyche rather than emotional if that makes sense that makes sense it's going to be an interesting insight to one of your characters I'm excited hopefully I mean Tate and Jack are two of my favorite characters but they are more i don't want to say more complex that feels wrong they are harder to write because i think they are further away from how i think a lot of the time yeah i would say that's um a good way of putting it because there are things i have in common like jack's anxiety and tate's need for control but a lot of it is very different. You know, I'm not an addict. I don't have an eating disorder. I'm not famous. I've never been famous. I don't have the complicated love lives of either of them. And so that really requires a degree of empathy and understanding that only comes from a lot of research and an open mind and also twisting yourself to fit something very, very different than what you are used to. And one of the reasons I said, I don't know what I'm going to write after The Witch's Sacrifice is because I might just write something that's a little bit easier. Still a fun read, still nice for me to write, but that's just a bit easier. Yeah, I'd say you've earned a break. <laughs> like, I, I love writing. I'm, I have fallen back in love with it and I can't wait to like get into Necromancer and Witch. But it would... The more I think about it, the more I'm leaning towards doing my Aussie romance, purely because that idea is older than the what happens in Hollywood universe. I came up with it in 2007, and it's kind of grown since I came up with it. And I feel like it would just be a really fun thing to write. And I could probably do it fast enough, particularly with my new system, but also just because um, it's easier and it's probably a novella to bring it out in the summer, which is the peak time for that genre. COVID you say included. probably a novella. I am picturing at least a trilogy. Duology at the moment. <laughs> I had the plot for book two before I had the plot for book one. Because, what's well, sort up? Of, because I changed the plot for book one because it was originally standalone, but now I can make it work in the what happens in Hollywood universe. It's just that it's different characters that people don't know. So it's still the same universe. There'll still be references to some people like Luke from Behind the Spotlight and possibly Holly and Cameron. But because they're in Australia and aside from Tate recording a film there, there is a bigger gap in terms of like both distance and flexibility because there's not an overlap. There's just kind of cameos like what Paige Toon does with a lot of her books. And we know how much you're obsessed with Australia. Slightly. Back to Hollywood Heartbreak, when can our lovely listeners get a copy of it? Well, it is out on the 25th of January, so it should actually be out by the time this episode goes live, and it is wide. Ooh. 
So it's on Amazon, Apple, Kobo, Google, Barnes and Noble, Angus and Robertson, some library platforms I can't remember the name of. So <laughs> yeah, wherever you want. And if you find a platform it's not on, let me know and I'll see what I can do. Did you find this episode enlightening? Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you hit like and subscribe. It helps other writers find our videos and lets us know what kind of content you want more of. And you can support the writer's mindset over on Patreon for less than your favorite coffee a month. We have some exciting stuff coming up on Patreon, including the outlining bonus episode I mentioned earlier, social media mindset content, as well as email marketing mindset. Come and join us to grab your bonus episodes now. I didn't think you'd actually say that as I wrote it. <laughs> I'm a professional. I go by the script. <laughs> Is it patreon.com forward slash writers mindset today to join our gang? See you next time. Keep writing. <laughs>